To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Good morning. Today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. Feel free to read along. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, well, hey, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Yeah, there you are. Awesome. Well, hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, welcome. We are excited that you're here with us. So, um, as you can tell, this is our very last sermon in our series on 1 uh, Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So, uh, turn, to your, turn your Bibles on or turn there if you got your Bibles. And um, who here has been just edified and fired up going through this letter? Anyone? Yeah. It's been awesome, right? I've been... I, I know I'm kind of biased, but I, I've been loving it. It's been awesome. And so the, 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 the ground we've traveled uh, or, or what we've seen as we've gone through this letter, if you will, is that this young Corinthian church had some really big issues, right? And that in a way that this, this young, immature, immature church was acting their age. They're kind of three to five years old in the faith. And so the Apostle Paul catch, catches wind of some of the stuff that was going on. And, and that's the correspondence we have is him writing back in response to what their immaturity looked like. And their immaturity manifested in a lot of ways that we've seen for the past five or so months as we've been going through this book. And that looked like factions and, and rivalries and divisions where these cliques had formed in the church. And they say, I follow Paul, Peter, Apollos, and, and we're, we're against each other rather than united in faith for the gospel. There was this unspeakable sexual immorality that was in the church. There was civil lawsuits. There was demonic idolatry, abuse of the gift of the Spirit, uh, drunkenness at communion, doubt of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, just to name a few of the issues that this church was facing. And through, you were to kind of uh, define what was going on or encapsulate what was going on with the Corinthians in one word, it'd be, a, it'd be kind of a mess, right? And, and so yes, we, we, what we've seen so far is, yes, the Corinthians in maturity, but I think also what sticks out and what we've seen so far is Paul's maturity in all of this and how he lovingly shepherds this young confused somewhat wayward flock and what he does what good shepherds do they get down into the mess into the muck and the mire where their sheep are at in order to lift them up out of it and paul knows this to be true that the only way to turn sheep from from their mess is to point them to their good and gracious shepherd and so what we've seen so far as we've been going through this letter it's hard to preach when you recognize that that is your daughter crying in the background. <laughs> oh, man. Parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, my sheep know my voice, and I know the voice of my sheep. All right. Um, so my, uh, 
So what we've seen so far, and sorry for the distraction up here, I'm getting everyone distracted. Uh, what we've seen Paul say so far to the Corinthians in the rest was this, was that Corinthians, this behavior of yours is not who you are in Christ Jesus. Right? But this behavior of yours is not who you are in Christ Jesus. This mess is not your identity. Your identity is that you belong to the Messiah. And so often what we've seen uh, Paul do to the church at Corinth, what he says to them is not just, hey, stop your behavior. He, says, he, he essentially says, do you have any idea how precious to God you are? Do you have any idea how precious to God you are, how much he loves you, how much grace he has for you, how much he's redeemed you and set you free? Do you understand who you are and who this Jesus is? He always goes back to the identity of who the good shepherd is and what that means for his sheep. And so my hope is this morning, it was, it was Paul's hope, I believe, for the Corinthians that, that this morning what would happen, what, what my prayers would take place is that if there's sheep here today that are wandering and drifting, they would stop, they would repent of that turn from their wandering and their drifted, drifting, and that they would look to Jesus, their good shepherd, and they would see his grace for, for them, their kindness. They would answer yes to his call to repentance, to return to their father who has open arms and is waiting for them to repent. Um, and so with that said, let me pray, and then we will close out this letter. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Father, that, um, God, you're just so worthy of praise. You're such a good, good Father, and your praise will ever be on our lips. That, that's a prophetic utterance right there. For all of eternity, there's going to be no greater joy than your praise being on our lips. So we thank you for what a, what a, tr a tremendous honor, what a privilege, Lord Jesus, that we get to gather here today, and we get to throw our hands and worship for you, Jesus, and for, for your posture towards us, that your posture is, uh, is not against us, it's for us. Your posture is not condemnation, it is compassion. Uh, it's not judgment, it's grace, it's mercy, it's love, it's kindness. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you open our eyes to see Jesus, to see the heart of God for his flock, for the sheep. Um, uh, help us, Lord Jesus, we need that. Because without you, we're walking blindly. Um, and so, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you come, you have your way, you transform hearts and minds and lives today, Lord Jesus, in that. Um, you would take your glory this morning, that you would increase, you would be magnified, and that I would decrease and be forgotten. And uh, we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I'm going to break up my talk in kind of three uh, ways here. And the first thing I think Paul reminds the Corinthians before he closes out this letter is that there is no effective gospel ministry without gospel co-labors. There's no effective gospel ministry that's going to be a solo ministry. So we're going to read verses 12, 15 through 19. And Paul lists a whole lot of people in these couple of verses. Verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with other with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And then verse 15, we're, jump, we're going to skip ahead to verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and, and, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker in labor. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greeting. Achilla and Prisca, uh, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. So greet one another with a holy 
kiss. And, and if you've watched movies, which we all have, uh, you know, at the end of the movies, like uh, if you've seen a Tom Cruise movie, right? Uh, Tom Cruise is going to be the star, right? He's, he's going to make sure that the only person you remember that movie is Tom Cruise, right? That's kind of how that works. But after every Tom Cruise movie, there's this long list of credits of all these people working behind the scenes, co-laboring with Tom Cruise to make that movie possible. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul is kind of rolling the credits here of all the gospel ministry that's taken place uh, in Ephesus, across Asia, in Corinth. And he lists people both named and unnamed, co-laborers in the gospel. So the first thing that sticks out, there's five things that stick out to me after reading these verses, and one of the first things that sticks out is this, is that Paul's ministry wasn't just about Paul's ministry. The church, uh, I, I think today in the, in the church, we, uh, we kind of have this mantra of the few, the proud, the pastors. Like the, we had the celebrity pastor mindset that the pastor is the one doing the work of the ministry. Or actually, throughout uh, God's word, it's, it's just the idea that every Christian is a co-laborer for the gospel. Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian is a missionary. And every Christian, every church member is to pick up an oar and row with everything they got for their king, Jesus. And so then Paul shifts from generic to specific, and he names a couple people here uh, that are worthy of recognition and honor. And he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. This was a, a married couple that Paul met uh, tent making in Corinth. And listen, um, they laid aside uh, everything they were doing in Corinth. And now what we learn here in this passage is that they are with Paul in Ephesus, that they left some things in Corinth in order to answer yes to the call to be devoted to Jesus. And they are there co-laboring with the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, opening up their house for the church. These were warriors in the faith, co-laborers for the gospel. And then Paul mentions Apollos. This was a, uh, Apollos was this fiery, itinerant uh, evangelist who had this gift of just like going town to town and people coming to know Jesus. And so much so that when Achilla and, Pris- and Priscilla uh, met him, they're like, hey, this guy has a gifting, but his theology is kind of off. So let's shepherd him. That's actually what we kind of learn is that Aquila and Priscilla actually uh, a shepherd and a disciple began to disciple this Apollos. And what Paul's saying in verse 12 is, listen, uh, Corinthians, he's taking care of some administrative business. He's saying, listen, Corinthians, Apollos isn't going to be able to make it. Me and him, by the way, you think, you know, you divide us up in the camps. You, you pit us against each other, Apollos and Paul. There's no competition between us. We're in this together. Apollos and I are on team Jesus, not team Paul, not team Apollos. And so here's the deal. Don't read into Apollos's absence. Don't think that he's not coming because he's got beef with me. No, we talk. We're cool. Don't look to the east. He just didn't think it was the right time to, to come to you all, okay? But Apollos is a co-laborer. He's left some things behind, and he's moving forward because he's answered yes to the call and the commission that Jesus has placed on, on his life. And then lastly, Paul mentions Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, their household. And what he says, he says, is that these were some, uh, Stephanus and his household, these were the first converts in the broader region of Corinth. And, and the situation now with Paul writing this, the situation he's describing is that Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, they have left Corinth. They have traveled maybe nine, if they traveled just by land, it's 900 miles, most likely on foot, uh, most likely to deliver a letter to Paul from the church at Corinth, traveled 900 miles to go to Ephesus to refresh Paul's spirit and then return home. That's what they did, right? That, that they were converted, it says they were converted, and then what we see in verse 15 is that they devoted themselves to the cause of Christ. And so, first thing that sticks out to me is Paul's ministry wasn't just about Paul's ministry. Paul needed the church just as much as the church needed him because it wasn't about him, it was about Jesus Christ and making him known. Therefore, it was all hands on deck for the Apostle Paul. 
Like all hands on deck. And I think maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul is one of the most influential uh, people in the history of the world for the cause of Jesus Christ is because uh, of the vast army of volunteers that he had with him, laboring with him behind the scenes, right? And the second thing that sticks out to me as I was studying this kind of jumped out to me is, is the second thing we learn here is that there is no menial, seemingly unimportant, unimportant task in the kingdom of God. See, Stephanus and Achaicus and Fortunatus, these three guys, listen, uh, there's a need. There's a need. And the need was, hey, somebody needs to deliver this letter to Paul in Ephesus. Maybe they're talking about this in the corporate gather, gathering, and, and, and one of them just raised their hands, and then two other raised their hands and say, we'll go. We'll be mailmen for Jesus. We'll deliver a letter, right, for Jesus. And they did that. And now, church, what I want to say is this. These men chose to be simple mailmen for Jesus, and look at the impact. 2,000 years later, we're still being edified by this. Souls are still being set ablaze because of these men doing a seemingly grueling, marginal, behind-the-scenes task. Look at the impact. Centuries change. Souls change forever. 1 Corinthians 15, that fire anyone up? Talking about the resurrection of Jesus? 2,000 years later. Thank God they didn't think that that task was beneath them, right? Thank God they said, yeah, I'll go. I'll humble myself. I'll leave my family, my job. I'll take leave. I'll walk 900 miles to deliver paper to somebody for Jesus after what he's done for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look at the impact that that had. And so where are you at today? What task that you're doing right now for your King Jesus that you think doesn't make an impact? Do, you, do we realize, church, do we realize that what we do matters and that generations Generations can be changed forever with simple tasks done for the glory of God and for the good of others. Third thing that sticks out, honor and recognition are given. Paul says, recognize these men. Talking about Stephanus and his household. Recognize these men. Honor and recognition are given in the church, not for gifting, but for humble, sacrificial service. Notice he didn't call out Apollos for his, his public speaking gift. No, he called out Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus for the sacrifices they made for the cause of Christ. That's what is worthy of recognition and honor. Paul says, give recognition to such people. That word recognition means to look upon, to, to kind of call up front on stage and give honor to people such as these who are going low. They're descending. They're doing the menial, marginal task behind the scenes for the cause of Christ. And, and Paul says, they're worthy of honor because it's not about gifting. It's about Christ-likeness. It's about Christ-likeness. And the fourth thing that sticks out, from these verses is this, is that, I love this, I love this, the very people that Paul ministered to, most likely converted and ministered to, are now ministering to him. Just catch that? Isn't that beautiful? This picture of like, you know, little Steph in the faith, little Steph, three to five years old, young in the faith, disciple of the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the first converts uh, in, in the broader region of Corinth, and um, his soul is so set on fire, radically changed by Jesus and the Apostle Paul's ministry that he wants to travel 900 miles to refresh Paul's spirit. And Paul says in this letter that these men have refreshed my soul. And what that means is that, what that potentially means is remember in Ephesus, Paul was facing some opposition. And what that means is that these men actually kind of filled up my tank a little bit. They kind of uh, threw some gasoline on slow-burning embers in my, in my face. They refreshed my spirits. And that's one of the most 
beautiful things of discipleship is when discipleship comes full circle and the very people you're pouring into, they get caught on fire by, by Jesus Christ himself and the Holy Spirit, and now they're setting your, your soul on fire. And so when I was a, I was a volunteer leader for... Um, all throughout college, and, and when I was a volunteer leader, I got to know this high schooler. I taught him how to drive stick shift, and by God's grace alone, I was, I was there with him uh, uh, to, to pray pray with him when he gave his life to Jesus at a summer camp, and, and we still talk to this day. I talked to him a couple weeks ago via Skype, and one of the best blessings the Lord has ever given me is that, uh, particularly, there was a season where, where his passion and his hunger and his fire for the Lord surpassed mine. And so, and so as we would meet and as we would talk, he was refreshing my spirit and, 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 and firing me up. And now, we're, we're, and, and now he's still doing that. And that discipleship for Paul, it came full circle. It was a boomerang, right? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the people of God? Not punting to, 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 to you know, the, the professional uh, Christians in the world, but saying, hey, we're all in this together. Everybody needs refreshing. Everybody needs encouragement. Let's go. We're in a battle. And I'll go. I'll go to Paul, man. I'll minister to him. So, so honor and recognition uh, the very people that, that Paul converted were now ministering to him. It's a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works in unity for the cause of Christ. And lastly, what we see is that uh, Stephanus and his household, they came to know Jesus. Now watch this. And then they made a decision to be devoted to him. Verse 15 says, you know that, talking to the Corinthians, you know you know who Stephanus is in his household. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first, the first fruits. That's what that word means, first fruits. Uh, the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. What Paul's saying here is evidence of their conversion was their devotion. Proper response to Christ's devotion for them was their devotion to him. And that's the truth of the gospel, is that churches, that our redemption always comes with a commission. You guys, you guys, you guys know that, right? Like our redemption, the blood-bought promises of Jesus Christ comes with a, with a commission where, where we are set free to now go set free. You've been rescued to now go rescue. You've been loved to go love. You've been forgiven to go, go and forgive. You've been invited into the kingdom to go out and invite others into the kingdom of God. Our redemption comes with a commission and our faith and trust. What we learn here is that our faith and trust, and if you've been following the CBR reading plan, you know we just read through James and James talks about this, this dynamic between faith and works. And here's the dear deal. Our, our faith in Jesus Christ is revealed through our actions, through what we do. And um, a beautiful picture of this, because I know it's kind of hard to say, isn't this legalism? How is that not legalism? I think a beautiful picture of this is, uh, sorry ladies, for those of you who don't watch football, it's football, okay? So track with me for the next couple of minutes on this illustration is, is the second the quarterback says hike and snaps the ball, you see this beautiful picture of faith and works going hand in hand, right? You do, you do, okay? Because the wide receiver, the second he hears his quarterback, they, they huddle up, they know the routes, you, everyone, you got your routes, you got your, your routes to go, you, you get on the line of scrimmage, he says hike, and what does the wide receiver do? Within five yards, he's throwing off the sins and the weights that easily entangle him. Right? You tracking with me? His back is turned. His back, he has no idea what's going on behind him. He runs in faith, not by sight, unless he's running backwards to catch the ball, which you would never do. So he's running with his back turned. He cannot see what's going on. He's taking the quarterback's words, right? He's saying, run this route. Go five yards, take a right, run five yards straight, take a left, and then try to get open, and I'll pass you the ball this second. And so he's running, 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 cutting, taking, throwing off the enemy, and then, the, and then he takes it in faith, 
that the second he turns, the quarterback's going to hold up his end of the deal and put the ball right where the quarterback promised to put the ball. Right? And so the reason I share that is this, is what would it look like if the wide receivers had no trust in their quarterback? No faith in what he's capable of doing. Quarterback says, hey, they're not going to run the routes because they know he can't throw the ball more than five yards, right? If I'm in the pocket, you know, for the Patriots, ain't nobody going to run the routes, right? But what does it look like? What does it look like when you have seen time and time and time and time again through thick and thin when you thought the impossible was, was, would never happen when you see your quarterback show up and keep his word? What do you do? You run your routes, man. You want to know how crazy, you want to know what that looks like? Watch Aaron Rodgers in the Packers play, right? Aaron Rodgers will be ducking and diving for like a minute. No one will tackle him. And what are the wide receivers doing? They run their route, their routes over, but the play's still going. And so they literally just run in circles. They just keep running in circles. Why? Because they know that if they keep running in circles, Aaron Rodgers can't hit you just on one foot. You know, throw a, like literally. If you've seen Aaron Rodgers play football, it's crazy, right? And so, so my challenge to us this morning, church, is who do you, who do you think your quarterback is? Yeah. Right? Do we have any idea who this Jesus is? Do we have any idea the power that He has to work in you and not just in you, but through you to go advance the kingdom of God across the face of the earth? Because the second you realize who this Jesus is and what He's capable of doing, and you've seen Him show up time and time and time again, you'll run a hail mary route every play just to see if He'll do it right? That's who our Jesus is. That's who's in the pocket for us. And so, so for us, we always say, oh, I got to go do works, right? Oh, I got to go. I got to go. Nick pastor tell me to go share my faith and you know, whatever. No, no, no. I'm saying look to Jesus. Get to know him. Get close to him. He's got more for you. He does. He's got more for me. Get to know him. Get to know more of his love, his grace, his power, not just for you, but the power that flows through you to advance the kingdom of God across the face. Do that and then, and, then, and then get set on fire. And what you'll do is you, you will leave everything behind you and you'll run for your quarterback until you drop dead because, there, listen, there's nothing better in the world than following this Jesus. He tells me to run around and go stand on my head. I'll go stand on my head. Because he can, he can make me catch a ball with my feet, man. Boom, you know? Like, that's what he's capable of doing, right? And so you don't, look in, you don't look introspective. You look extrospective. You look outside yourself. You look to, this is who Jesus is. And in his grace to us, church, in his grace to us, he's, in, he's drafted us on the team. He's invited us into the huddle. And we all have different routes to run. And, and God's word, actually, we all have the same routes to run. But individual callings, right? Will you run your route for your QB? In faith? It's faith, right? And sometimes that first route, that first play, when you've been drafted and you step out in faith, you actually maybe haven't seen the quarterback hold up his end of the deal. But, 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 but would you just take that baby step today? Would you run a one-yard out route and see what he's capable of doing and build that faith? Because listen, 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 touchdowns belong to the quarterback, right? Salvations belong to Jesus Christ. And yet in his grace to us, he chooses to use the church to advance the ball down the field. And so when the quarterback snaps the ball, what is he doing? He's simply looking for people who want the ball. He's, he's simply looking for people who are open, right? And, 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 and man, if there's a hunger and there's a thirst and there's a passion and you're, you're, you're ripping off sin and the enemy that's easily entangled, you say, I want more of Jesus. I want to make him known. Boom, you get open. Just see what your quarterback can do with that. Just see what he can do with that, church. We're out of time. I got to keep going here. But, um, but that's what 
Priscilla and Aquila did. That's what Apollos did. That's what Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus did, is they knew Jesus, they knew him, they were converted, and then they were devoted to running their routes for him because they knew Jesus. And they knew what he was capable of. They knew what Jesus could do with them just simply running a mail route to Ephesus. The second thing that sticks out, Corinthians, gospel ministry is a relentless battle. Look at verses uh, 13 through 14, because here's the deal. The simple truth in life, we often forget this, is that Christian life is a battle. It's warfare, right? Uh, There's there's someone I dearly love, and and the Lord is doing some crazy work in their life, and they've kind of woken up from a slumber, and now they're they're like committed to, to... just jumping in the deep end of the pool with Jesus and opposition is coming. There's fear. There's opposition. And I texted them kind of with a smiley emoji. I said, welcome to the battle. Welcome to the battle. It's the best battle. It's a battle we've already won. The war still rages. We've won the war, but the battle still rages. But welcome to the fight. It's the best place to be, church. The best place to be is to be woke up to the battle. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says this. Paul says this earlier on in this chapter. He says, a wide door for effective work a wide door for effective gospel ministry has opened for me in Ephesus. And then what Paul says next is, and so I, I, I lit up a cigar and I popped champagne. Because, because, man, ministry is easy. The Christian life is easy. Man, doors open and left and right. I'm just walking through these doors, victories, all this stuff. No, no, that's not what Paul says. And he doesn't say but. He says, he says wide doors have opened and many adversaries have come as well. Many adversaries have come as well. Almost as if open doors in gospel ministry is going to be met with relentless opposition to that ministry as well. And so due to that truth, I think uh, that is why Paul leaves the Corinthians with these crystal clear, direct, military-like commands in, uh, in verses 13 through 14. It's what a general would, would tell his troops before they march into battle, right? And so let's look at these, these five commands. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. And so the question that we need to ask is, why in the world is Paul, why are these commands needed, and why are these the last commands that Paul gives the Corinthians after everything he told them? Well, I think it's important for us to imagine for an instance, hey, maybe that Sunday corporate gathering comes around where where news gets around that, hey, Paul's letter has returned from Ephesus. So the whole church gathers. Someone reads it from chapter 1 all the way to to the end of chapter 16. And, and, And let's say, we're not exactly sure how this played out, Holy Spirit falls upon the Corinthians. Revival breaks out. Everyone repents up and down. They're hugging each other and saying, sorry, I'm so sorry I sued you. I'm so sorry about the drunkenness. You know, all this stuff. And, and revival's breaking out. Their hands are in the air. They're crying. They're, they're praising God. It's Sunday. It's awesome. Revival, this is a good thing. Revival's a good thing. Repentance is a good thing, right? So say that happens on Sunday. Well, what happens on Monday? Corinthians still wake up in pagan Corinth, Right? You can repent all you want, Corinthians, and this, and you should. That's what I've been telling you for the last 16 chapters is repentance is what is needed. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus. But don't think this. This is the lie we believe with repentance is, is we have this Kevin McAllister home alone. You guys tracking with me? Anyone? Uh, idea when it comes to when it comes to repentance. Like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, he hates his family, they're a bunch of jerks, he makes a vow, I want my family to disappear. He wakes up and his family's gone. And then he says this line, I made my family disappear, right? And oftentimes with our repentance, we repent, we turn from sin and obedience to God. And then we say, God, now you need to make my problems disappear. When in fact, righteousness is never convenient. In fact, repentance is the 
best thing in the world. But if you, for a second, think that it's going to be easy, that there's not going to be a fight, that there's not going to be a battle, you are deceived. And so that's why Paul leaves these commands to the Corinthians is, yes, repent. And after that day comes, hopefully on Sunday, these commands are for Monday. Tracking with me? These commands are for Monday. And so the truth of the matter, what we learn is repentance is a declaration of war against the devil himself because repentance, it might make things uh, more, uh, repentance is a declaration of war against the devil himself. And, and, and listen, when you turn from the kingdom of darkness and return to your king, Jesus, if you think, if you think the enemy is going to go down without a fight, you're deceived. You're deceived. And so Paul, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you repent, prepare for war. So let's look at these five commands. One, Paul says, Corinthians, be watchful. Be watchful. Be on guard. Be alert. Stay awake. You're in a battle, and there's an enemy trying to kill you 24-7. Watch out. 1 Peter 5.8. This command, this, this scripture is it's pretty wild. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We see that. Be watchful again. Your adversary, the devil himself, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? He's not, he's not saying the enemy prowls around like a cute little chihuahua ready to nip at your heels. No, he's talking about a lion seeking to eat you. That's what he says. And so my question, my challenge to you would be, do you actually believe this scripture? Do you actually believe that there's a spiritual darkness 24-7 trying uh, to destroy you? Right? Do you believe that? Because if, if we actually believe that, we would, we would be watchful of what we're watching. We would be watchful of what we're doing. We would be watchful of what we're thinking a little bit more than we are because there's danger. Paul, Paul is saying this. Peter is saying this. Is that there's, there's danger out there. There's an enemy who, is, who, who literally hates you because, because I'm inside of you. And we say, oh, Nick, come on, man. Isn't our indwelling sin what we should be worrying about? Not some guy with a cape and a pitchfork. What are you talking about, spiritual darkness? One, if you're a Christian, I encourage you to read your Bibles. But, but this is what I would say. Then my follow-up to be would be this: is well, then my, my challenge would be, well, what is sin? Is not is not sin turning from King Jesus? Is is sin not turning from the kingdom of God and aligning yourself to the kingdom of darkness? Is not sin it, it, sin is not just disobeying God? It's you it's you obeying the devil himself and his will for your life. That's what sin is. That's why it's such a big deal, right? And so that's why unrepentant sin, like if you're here today and you have unrepentant sin, where you're refusing uh, uh, to repent, that's like you closing a door to God. And whenever you close a door to God in your life, there's, there's a wide open door for the enemy to get a foothold in your life. This is the truth, right? We need to be woken up to this. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. The apostle, the apostle says that we should never relax. Never be off our guard, but stand always and be ready and at arms and at all times because of the devil and his powers. Anyone who is not aware of a fight and conflict in the spiritual sense is in a drugged and hazardous condition. A man who does not understand the teaching of the apostle on this matter is either fast asleep in the arms of the devil or is else an utterly defeated Christian. Those are hard words. Those are scary words. Might I suggest that those are true words. Those are true words. And so my question before we move on to the second command is where in your life do you need to be watchful? 
for the enemy who's trying to gain or regain territory in your life. Next command, Corinthians, stand firm in the faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, as, Christians, as Christian people, we are set in this tremendous conflict, wrestling, standing against, withstanding an enemy that is attacking. The first thing you have to do is to repulse the attacks, and you have to keep on doing so because he continues to be the enemy. The idea is, is that it's a relentless war. There's an enemy who's always attacking you, and even though you get your victory, listen, stand, and make sure you, that you continue to do so. Always keep on your feet. In other words, the difficult thing in this world is to keep on your feet, for there's an enemy who is ever threatening you and trying to knock you down. I love this last line. The great task of life, the great business of life is to keep standing. Oh, isn't that good? Martin Lloyd-Jones. Love that guy. Um, here's two truths. One, the enemy wants you to lie and defeat and wallow in shame and defeat and in the muck and the mire of the world. The enemy wants you down, first truth. Second truth, Jesus wants you standing in victory. Chin up, shoulders back, I'm a child of God who can dare bring a charge against God's elect. Right? And so, so to stand firm in the faith, what this looks like is if you're here today and you're coming defeated today, you feel like the enemy's been getting an upper hand in your life. You say, Proverbs 24, 16, you say, the righteous man, I'm righteous, I'm covered in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ because of his atoning work on the cross for me. The righteous man, though he falls seven times, he gets back up. Because he's a child of God. I'm not sitting in the muck. Jesus isn't standing over me saying all those lies about me. That's the enemy. I'm getting up. And my shoulder's going to be back. My chin is up. Because I, I, I'm a co-heir with Christ. Heaven is my home. I'm royalty according to this word. I don't, I don't wallow in the mud. I get up and it's Jesus. I listen to his voice. And then if you're here today, man, and life's been good, revival's been breaking out in your life, and you've been like, oh, just loving it. My, my encouragement would be 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where the apostle Paul tells the Corinthians this, therefore, let anyone, thinks, let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? Because if we're doing good, what, what's the lie we believe? Oh, man. Just get more lax on your morality. Oh, all those, all those checks and balances, that watchfulness. Yeah, oh, you don't need to be watchful anymore. The enemy, the enemy stopped, stopped doing his thing. And then, we, and then what happens? What happens with that, right? Be careful lest you fall. Keep standing. Stand firm. And I think we stand firm the strongest when you and I know who we are in Christ Jesus. It's identity. It's I know. I take it to the bank that I'm going to believe what God says about me and not what the enemy says about me. That's how we stand firm. And once you get awoken to the fact of who you are in Christ Jesus, the enemy loses, I think, like the majority of the power, right? Because you walk in the authority and the power of Jesus that he's given you as a child, as a son and daughter of God, and so that when the shame comes, you can say, who can dare bring a charge against God's elect? Last time I checked, my record is covered by the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to stay standing. I'm going to keep standing. Three, act like men. Greek, in the Greek, this is one word, anthropos, which kind of means more act like an adult, act your age. And there's always a temptation in our lives to act like children, right? And that's what the Corinthians were doing. That's what we've been looking at. And so last night during bath time, uh, Jen and I were playing man-to-man coverage for our kids. I had my youngest, Jen had the oldest. And out of nowhere in the bathtub, my year-and-a-half-year-old is, is playing with this like cup of water. And then she, she <laughs> takes a gulp of the bath water that they've been marinating it for like 30 minutes, like a crock pot. Um, and I, I, I was floored, and I said, hey, this, that was kind of crazy and, and kind of cute and kind of funny, but listen, I know you're a kid, but this needs to stop and never happen again. 
because we're going to have to go to the ER and everyone's going to get sick of my family and all that stuff. So, um, so with that said, I think with Paul, what he's saying is there's so much grace for this young church. So much grace for this young church. Hey, but what he's saying is, hey, this needs to stop and you need to be watchful that it never happens again. Right? And oftentimes in our life, in order to be an adult, the child must see an adult. In order, in order to be a man, a boy must see a man. In order for a girl to, see a, uh, to be a woman, she must see a woman, what that looks like. And that's why discipleship is so important. But most importantly, for us to act in maturity, what it means to be fully human, we must behold Jesus in order to become like him. That's what it looks like. Maturity, moving from immaturity to maturity, is to, to, to be more like Christ in our thinking and in our attitudes and in our actions. It's Christ-likeness. Fourth, be strong. Be strong, Corinthians. Um, so what context is the command, be strong, needed in? You tracking with me? Like, I got news for you. If it's a beautiful sunny day and you're out golfing with your buddies and Tommy's about to putt a two-foot putt, you're not going to say, Tommy, be strong. Like, if you miss this putt, man, it's going to be... Like, no, there's no opposition there, right? No, the context for this command to be strong, the context is, is that this command is only needed when you're faced with extremely challenging circumstances where lack of strength can bring about destructive consequences in your life. So we learn here is that Christianity is not for the faint of heart, that Jesus guarantees not our prosperity, but our persecution, right? And so what we learn with the Christian life is you'll be tempted to quit. You're going to be wrestling with doubts. You're going to be faced with opposition and trials and hardships. So therefore, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And i got to rush through this. I'm running out of time. Five, let all you do be done in love. I love that last command. Let all you do be done in love. Why should we be watchful? Why should we stand firm in faith? Why should we act with maturity? Why should we be strong? We do it out of love for Jesus, and we do it out of love for our, our fellow co-laborer, the soldiers in the trenches with us. Because we know that there's corporate consequences to us not being watchful, for us not being strong, for us not acting with maturity, Right? If I let the enemy in in my life, that is corporate consequences for all of your lives, right? We see this time and time again when, when a leader falls, right? And, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and the ramifications, there's this ripple effect of destruction and, 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 and just sin that, that just wrecks the church. And so my watchfulness is not just about me. My, my strength is not just for me. It's to be done in love. So everything I do should be done in Love, and that's how we advance the kingdom of God across the face of the earth against the kingdom of hatred is through love, right? That's the supreme ethic that Jesus has left us with is you are dearly loved and I have loved you with a sacrificial atoning love. Now you go love others and, and love is the weapon of mass destruction against the kingdom of darkness, right? That's how we advance this kingdom is through praying for those who persecute us, it's for loving our enemies, laying down our lives so that they can taste and see how good our Savior is. Let all we do be done in love. And so, uh, shifting from those final commands, Paul moves from those final commands to his final closing to the Corinthians, verses 21 through 24. And the third thing, and lastly, I'll slowly wrap up with this, is that there's no Christian life, Corinthians, Corinthians, there's no Christian life that is not from first breath to final, that is covered in and empowered by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O oh Lord, come. Sing Maranatha there in Aramaic. O oh Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. So what Paul's doing there was common practice in his day and age where he, uh, he kind of had a speak-to-text function, 
where he would speak to a scribe and the scribe would write out. He kind of takes the, the pen from the scribe, if you will, and, and uh, he starts writing. One, he does this to, um, to say that, hey, I've read the contents of this letter, I approve of it, and I authenticate this letter with my handwriting. And some of the last things he says, I gotta be honest, verse 22 is kind of a shocker. He says, if someone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And what Paul isn't talking about, he's not talking about unbelievers here, Paul is talking about the believers within the church at Corinth who have been causing all of the chaos and the division here, who have been aligning themselves with the kingdom of darkness who wants to divide and destroy the church. So there's a warning here. There's a warning here that Paul sneaks into his closing. And if we follow his logic, it looks like this. If someone has no love for God, follow his logic here, if someone has no love for God, then what the flip side of that is that they actually have hatred for God. And where do we find hatred for God other than the kingdom of the devil himself who hates God as well? And with, when you align yourself with the kingdom of the devil and darkness and the kingdom of hatred, the result of that is a life accursed rather than a life of blessedness. Galatians 6 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God will not be, not be mocked, right? He is offering free salvation. He's offering free grace to each and every one of us here every single day, every second of our lives. He is. But listen, when we close our fists to God, we, close, we box him out and we say, absolutely not, not this part of my life, not this sin, not this struggle. You have no say over this. When we do this, when we do this, we're saying yes to the enemy. We're saying yes, have your way with my life. Because whenever we do this, whenever we close the door to God, we're opening one to the devil himself. But when we do this to Jesus Christ, you have so many blessings that you can't even, you can't even, you can't even handle it, right? And so this is the, the life of curse, the life of, of hatred for God, the life of separation from God, and this just receiving everything he's done because he loves each and every one of you in this room. This is the blessed life, the life covered in from start to finish, the sweet, undeserved grace of God. And so lastly, I'll wrap up with this. Paul's final words to the church, I love this. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, Corinthians, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul's final wish to this messy, kind of crazy church was not health. It wasn't wealth. Listen, it wasn't a morality makeover. Paul wished one thing upon them, and it was grace. It's grace. And I think often in the church we, we confuse, we think grace is kind of, grace is something in and of itself not understanding that grace is something that comes from someone. That grace is something that flows out of someone, and that someone is the Lord Jesus. Grace has a name, and his name is Jesus. And so what happens? What happens when the sweet, undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus is with the Corinthians? What happens when his atoning sacrifice on the cross is applied to their hearts? When his blood is, is sprinkled on the doorframe of their hearts, what happens? This is what happens. All of their mess, all of their failures, their idolatry, their division, their sexual immorality, their drunkenness, and all their other sins are not counted against them as they should be. And this is what Jesus 
does because he loves the Corinthian church. Jesus loves his bride. He loves the Corinthians. In a way, I believe Jesus looks at the Corinthian church, whom he dearly loves, whom he gave his life for, and he says to them, hey, hey, your adultery, your hatred, your sin, your drunkenness, hand that to me. Hand that over to me. All your sins. Would you answer the call of Jesus about that? Give me, give me all your sins. Would you trust me with your sins? Would you trust me with them? Would you credit them to my account? See, Corinthians, listen, I didn't go to the cross empty-handed. Corinthians, I went to the cross with my hands full of your wrongdoing. I went to the cross full with your wickedness. And I drank in the full ferocious cup of the Lord's just wrath against all of those sins that you have committed. And so what my grace to you looks like, my grace to you is this, is that I took your sins and I marched to your cross to bear your punishment, to defeat your enemies that you were hopeless to overcome so I could reconcile you to your loving Father by rising again to new life and declaring once and for all that your sin no longer gets the final say in your life because your sins are no longer with you because my grace is with you. Your sin is no longer with you. My grace is with you. And my grace is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. Mm. In Corinthians, it is my grace that has brought you safe this far. And you can take this to the bank. It's my grace that will lead you home. And so Transit Church, do you know this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you believe that this grace is with you? What sin are you wrestling with right now that you think the, 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 the atoning, sacrificial work of Jesus doesn't overcome? What sin in your life do you think is not covered by the blood of Jesus? What sin in your life that you can't overcome? Do you not think that Jesus in his grace will empower you to break the chains of that bondage and addiction in your life? Do we know who our Jesus is and the grace and his posture towards us? And here's what we need to know about our God today. is he delights in showing mercy. Friends of church, do you know how precious you are to this Jesus? Do we know this? that he wants to lavish more and more and more of his grace and his kindness and his love and his freedom and his joy and his peace upon you. Yes, forever and also yes, today. Because his grace is with you. His grace is with you. And so with that said, let's respond this morning with confession. Confession where maybe we've closed our fists but also open-handedness, uh, heartfelt gratitude for the undeserved love and grace that this Jesus has lavished upon us. And leave here today singing the song of that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with me from now and forevermore. I am covered and his grace is sufficient to lead me home. And so let me, let me pray for us and we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't, you don't leave us the way you found us. That's the beautiful news of this redemptive story of who Jesus is, is that your, your cross, your death, your incarnation, and your, and your crucifixion, your resurrection, it's your rescue story for us. It's your rescue story for us. Where you came and, and for the joy that was set before you, the joy of seeing, seeing people in this room today, uh, hearing and responding to, to your love and your grace for them. The joy of them with tears in their eyes, repenting, 
and leaving their sin behind and giving it over to you so that they can have the new life that you promised them, Lord Jesus. The joy set before you was your church coming to be reconciled to their Father and coming to know their true identity, their true purpose in life. And so, Jesus, you did that for us out of love for us. Thank you for doing that. So we pray this in your name. Amen.